We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful. A lot of anxiety. And it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Hey, this is Vivek Ramaswamy. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to the Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Up next, Rob Smith is problematic, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Texas just enacted one of the strictest laws on the books in regards to abortion. Whether or not the law stands is up for debate, but what is certain is that the cultural conversation in regards to abortion is starting to shift, and not in the way that the left wants. This is Rob Smith is Problematic. All right, Problematics, I have a confession to make. Uh, it, it is an embarrassing confession to make. I did not know until very recently, and I'm talking maybe in the past three years, I did not know that the founder of Planned Parenthood, uh, the top abortion provider in the United States, was a white supremacist and eugenicist who founded Planned Parenthood in part to exterminate the black population. I am not making this up. Her name was Margaret Sanger. Um, now, some of you problematics may know this. You may not know this. I was surprised when I learned it that this was information that was very much kept hidden. And so this is a very real thing. And, and I came across, you know, what I was doing research for this episode. And, and before we get into this, um, I just wanted to say I usually... Stay away from the abortion topic because sometimes it's like, well, I don't know if I if I feel it's my place or whatever. But then, you know, why am I not allowed to have an opinion on, on abortion or, or any of this stuff? God knows I have opinions on everything else. Um, so I'm going to speak freely about this, but I'm going to, you know, try to be as, as respectful as possible. Obviously, I, I am not female. Um, but I came across an article in USA Today. Um, it, this was an, an op-ed that this was published, I you know, going on two years ago. But this was somebody advocating, you know what the left likes to do because they like to erase the history that doesn't benefit them. So this is actually somebody that is advocating to remove statues of Margaret Sanger because of her history um, as a racist and as a white supremacist. And, and I thought that this was very interesting. And this is from um, this person's 
op-ed. Um, and she writes this. In promoting birth control, she advanced a controversial Negro project, wrote in her autobiography about speaking to a Ku Klux Klan group, and advocated for a eugenics approach to breeding for, quote, the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extinction of defective stocks. Those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. Whoa. She was quite the racist. And this is the woman um, that founded Planned Parenthood. This is the woman that is the, the great feminist hero um, for the left. And, and it goes on. And there's something to connect this with, with what's happening right now. And so in a 1939 letter um, to, the, to uh, one of the doctors that, that she was going to use to kind of like promote this agenda, this is what she said. She wanted him to get over his reluctance to hire a full-time Negro physician as the, quote, colored Negroes can get closer to their own members and more or less lay their cards on the table, which means their ignorance, superstitions, and doubt. This is what Margaret Sanger said. We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. And this is the woman that founded Planned Parenthood. This is it. Like, this is her. And so what has this, you know, accomplished? And and, and I just talked to Planned Parenthood. I'm not going to make it all about race, but... We just have to really look into, you know, how destructive this is. Okay. So the vast majority of abortion vendors like Planned Parenthood have set up shop in minority neighborhoods. Although they are only 13% of the female population, African-Americans made up 38% of all abortions tracked in 2016. In the 1970s, when Roe versus Wade legalized abortion, made a law, the law of the land, Polling showed that blacks were significantly less likely to favor abortion than whites, yet in New York City, more black babies are aborted than born alive every single year. <laughs> Margaret Sanger wrote an article called A Better Race Through Birth Control, and she wrote, given birth control, the unfit will voluntarily eliminate their kind. So this is what we're dealing with, folks, like when, when it comes to the abortion conversation. And so... You know, maybe you knew all this stuff about Planned Parenthood. Maybe you didn't. I certainly was not aware of any of this stuff until three years ago. Because, you know, when I made this shift from left to right, you really do. Um, you, you just start learning how many things were hidden from you. Okay. And over, at least until the past couple of years, I, I feel like we spoke about abortion in a certain way. In America, right? Um, we, you know, we pretty much said that, you know, it, it's a woman's right to choose, you know, all this other stuff. Roe versus Wade is the law of the land. There was definitely a pro-life movement that is very strong. It has always been strong in the Republican Party. It is a very strong pro-life movement. But that pro-life movement, I don't necessarily think has gone mainstream. But there was a big shift in how we talk about abortion. And I believe, and, and this is what I can really remember, this is when it started. 
when Governor Blackface, remember Governor Ralph Northam, uh, Ralph Northam down there in Virginia, he basically made a statement. And granted, I- I'm going to give you some context here. He's talking about third trimester abortion, and he's talking about, um, you know, he people. He's talking about babies here with with huge birth defects and and all of this other stuff. So I just want to give that some context because I don't want to be hacky um, and and play you this clip. And it's like he's talking about all babies. He was definitely talking about, um, you know, fetuses with birth defects and all this stuff. But this is the way that he spoke about abortion. Right. Uh, Whether he's talking about um, fetuses with birth defects or not, this is the way that he spoke about abortion. And this is what really led to I think a very big shift in the way that it is discussed. One uh, first thing I would say, this is why decisions such as this should be made by providers, uh, physicians uh, and uh, the uh, mothers uh, and fathers that, that are involved. Um, there are, you know, when we talk about third trimester uh, abortions, these are done uh, with the consent uh, of obviously the, the mother with the consent uh, of the physicians, more than one physician, by the way. Um, and it's done in cases where there may be severe deformities, there may be a, a, a fetus that's non-viable. So in this particular example, uh, if a mother is in labor, I can tell you exactly uh, what would happen. Um, the infant would be delivered. Uh, the infant would be kept comfortable. Uh, the infant would be resuscitated if, if that's what the uh, mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mothers. And so this comment right here went totally viral. OK, so this is what he's saying. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and family desired. And basically what he is talking about here is basically murdering a baby that has already been born. So this is what we're talking about here. And this led to such a it just it it's outrageous, right? It is outrageous. And it's not just that this led to the shift in the pro-life Republican movement saying, you know, this is so bad, all of this other stuff. Um, I I believe that this was really a shift in how a lot of people were really thinking about this. Because when people think about abortion, it had just become so normalized, nobody really thought about the fact that this is basically, this is the murder of children, right? And... In the words of Tulsi Gabbard, I know Tulsi Gabbard's a, a a Republican darling for you know how she was slaying a lot of the Democrats when back when you know all those clowns were running for president. But Tulsi Gabbard made a remark when she was running uh, when she was running during one of the debates, and she said basically she believes like Hillary Clinton that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And let me tell you something, folks. When you have Governor Northam talking about basically murdering a child after it's been born. You are a very, very, very long way from safe, legal, and rare. And so the Texas abortion law, this has brought up this entire conversation again, and I want to talk about what that means after the break. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. 
We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The Ralph Northam comments represented a cultural shift, I believe, in the way that the vast majority of Americans really think about abortion. Because here's the thing. As much as the left wants to pretend that everybody just loves the idea of killing babies and they need to shout their abortions and they need to do all of these different things, most people, most normal people think, in the words of, you know, Bill Clinton coined this, by the way. That abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. Do I believe that abortion should be totally outlawed? I do not. And this is why. Because would it be, I don't think it should be totally outlawed because it will become a two-tier system where women that have the means will do it anyway. And women who don't have the means will be pushed into very, very dangerous things. This is what I believe. So I do not believe in outlawing it outright. And some conservatives and Republicans do. And that is very much their right. I am not here to tell anybody how to think about this. And I certainly don't want anybody to tell me how to think about this. This is just truly what I believe. And I believe that some of the stuff when it came to, you know, women fighting for this and shouting their abortions and all of this stuff, it got so ugly and it got so crazy that people really did just want to take a step back. So I, I want to play you something. This is a Hollywood actress. Her name is Busy Phillips. She was on, uh, I believe she was on Dawson's Creek. Uh, she was on a very funny show called Cougar Town. Nothing is her. Funny actress, funny actress. She, she's, she's a Hollywood crazy, though. And she went viral for all the wrong reasons. She's speaking at one of these, you know, abortion rallies, which is what they are. They're abortion rallies. And this is her speaking. You know what? I'm just going to play this clip for you. You may have heard it before. This is basically her saying, no, I'm just going to play it for you. I, I Because I really, really do. Um, I, I want you to hear this because this is, this is kind of how twisted things had gotten at a certain point. Listen to this. I have all of this. All of it! Because! 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 I was allowed bodily autonomy at 15! Okay. So what she's saying here is that I am a wealthy and famous Hollywood actress and I have a whole lot of money and everybody knows who I am. And I wouldn't, and I have all of this because I was allowed to have an abortion at 15 years old. And if you watch this clip, you know, I'm playing you the audio, but you watch the video. I mean, the woman looks deranged. She, she just does. She looks deranged, right? And so here's the thing with the left. They always push it just a little bit too far because the left never stops. You have to understand that the left never stops when it comes to this stuff. And, and so these were two moments. And these moments, by the way, Northam and this uh, Busy Phillips woman, these were within months of each other, right? Because the Northam thing, it just really kind of like incited the, this whole thing. So these things were within a couple month, months of each other. And like I said, the left always pushes it too far because these people are so in their, they're so far in their deranged little bubble that they could not comprehend or even recognize the idea that somebody may not agree with them or that even some people that think that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare 
are not necessarily shouting it from the rooftops. They are not screaming about the fact that they had an abortion at 15 years old um, and saying that, thank God I did that because if not, then I wouldn't have been able to be a wealthy and famous Hollywood actress, which is what she's saying. This stuff doesn't sit well with most people. This stuff does not sit well with most normal people. And the thing with the left is that they're so deep in their bubble, they do not realize that a lot of the things that they are pushing have been and continue to be vastly out of step with what normal Americans think, what the majority of red-blooded normal Americans think, okay? And so that was a shifting point. And I noticed, and I remember when that moment happened, I was a little, I was involved in the conservative movement at that point in time. I had come out, I had started kind of like speaking at events and things like that. And for me, when I think about the abortion issue, and when I think about, and really, and I'm just going to say this, when I think about all of these little tests that, you know, people, you know, they, they are able to genetically model, you know, nowadays they're exploring, you know, I'm able to have my baby have blue eyes or brown eyes or whatever we test babies for. And, you know, people that have Down syndrome children, they make this argument because they they know that a lot of people would maybe not choose to have a Down syndrome child, Right. So they're getting, they're testing for that stuff in the womb and and they're, you know, aborting a lot of those babies. Is that right? Is that wrong? Is that moral? I do not know. But I know when you see a lot of these parents of Down syndrome children, they love these children. They love these children. And they can imagine their lives without these children. And so for me personally, you want to know why I'm talking about abortion. You want to know why I care about this as a gay man. And I really do think about these things. If... Me being gay, if my homosexuality, if any of this stuff, if it really is genetic, and, I, and I've always believed that it is, um, and when you talk about gay being genetic, I, and let me tell you something. I have three close personal gay male friends that I know that have gay uncles. We all have gay uncles. It's something genetic. It's something in the bloodline. I think it skips a generation. Like, it's a thing. I truly believe that. I truly believe that. But if you have parents that are able to check and see, well, if I'm going to have a gay kid, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready to have a gay kid. If they can test for that stuff, well, maybe we should just abort it so we can have a straight child. And so I really think about things like that. And so that was the big shift. And that was the, the really big cultural shift about abortion. So um, to this Texas law. So this is what the Texas law means. And, and, and right now, this is igniting a whole new course, a whole new um, aspect of the culture war. So this is what the Texas abortion ban does. So it, it basically bans abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. And this is from NPR. I, I wanted to go to a NPR is left leaning, but it's not insane. I just wanted to get the facts, you know. Um, So this law basically bans abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. That's well before many women even know they're pregnant. That's what NPR says. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not a woman. Um, But I remember there was this viral video and I couldn't find it. And this was was a black woman that was using, that was very pro-life and was using very colorful language about women not knowing their own bodies. And she said basically, women know their vaginas and but she didn't say vagina it was it was very vulgar but very funny and she was like you're not gonna tell me that there's some woman that doesn't know that she's pregnant within a month of missed periods whatever right 
So the law allows private citizens to sue abortion providers and anyone else who helps a woman obtain an abortion. The law makes no exceptions for cases involving rape or incest. Uh, In NPR, they're calling the Texas law one of the strictest abortion bans in the country. So this is where we are right now. And, And every time something like this happens and every time something like this pops up in the culture... Then it's like, oh, what does this mean for Roe versus Wade? What does this mean for Roe versus Wade? Is it going to get um, struck down? Is it going to do anything? I do not know. I am not a legal expert, nor am I a legal scholar. I know um, there's a GOP Senator Bill Cassidy, and he has kind of downplayed um, this abortion law. Now, he thinks that the Supreme Court will, in his words, swat it away. But the Supreme Court declined to take this up, which is what everybody is freaking out about. And the left is, is in full-blown freakout. Um, there was about, I think, you know, 100 or 200 Hollywood actresses that just put their names um, on this open letter that say, you know, we don't support this, blah, blah, blah. I think um, Portland, Oregon is trying to fight back against Texas. They're like they're trying to ban travel to Texas, whatever. Uh, you know, we've kind of seen all of these things happen before with the culture wars. Right. Remember, we saw this uh, with the voting rights thing that happened in, in Georgia. Um, and, and voting rights is part of the culture war, too. But the, you know, so Senator Bill Cassidy, this is a Republican from Louisiana. He basically said that the Supreme Court would likely swat away Texas restrictive new abortion law. Um, and this is what he thinks. And I think that this is is very true. Um, and this is what he said to Stephanopoulos on um, one of the ABC, like ABC Sunday morning or, you know, one of the Sunday shows. He said that this has nothing to do with the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade. Uh, it was only on if the plaintiff had standing. And this is what he says, which I think is brilliant. I think it's true. He said people are using this to gen up their base to distract from everything else, to distract from disastrous policies in Afghanistan, maybe for fundraising appeals. This is what she said. Or this is what he says. And I believe that he is absolutely right. I believe that this is a conversation um, and, and I hope that you listening to this and, and really getting some of this information about what the law actually does and also some of that information about the racist origins of Planned Parenthood um, it is very interesting to you because I am telling you, like I said, I did not know these things. Do I think that the Supreme Court will likely swat it down? Probably. But here's the thing. It's going to be a model for a lot of Republican-run states to move forward with. And you know they're all looking at it to see what happens, okay? Um, we will probably see similar laws like this in, in, in places like... I don't know if, if DeSantis would wade into this. I'm, I'm curious about whether or not he would wade into this. Because I'm curious about how super pro-life he is. I'm very curious about that because I don't know that he's spoken too much on that issue. But we're going to see certainly laws like this um, on the books in, in some deep red states. Uh, we're going to see it possibly in, in you know, places like Mississippi, places like uh, Alabama. You know, we, we're just going to see it. And what I don't like about this, and I have to be completely honest, folks, what I don't like about this is that I don't like these two-tier systems I wish that we could just come to a moderate agreement on abortion as a nation and just let it stand. I 
am okay with safe, legal, and rare. I think that the vast majority of normal people do not want to hear Hollywood actresses screaming about how they had abortions at 15 years old. If you talk to to some women who have had abortions, and I have, um, and I've talked to, and I don't believe that I am, you know what, I'm not even going to, I was going to say there's there's a public person that I may have spoken to, but I don't want to mischaracterize that conversation because number one, I don't know how public she is about this. Um, and, and number two, I think so, but I, I don't have time to fact check that right now. But there are people that have had abortions, uh, women that have had abortions and they talk about that. And so on the flip side of the wealthy, famous Hollywood celebrity that had this abortion, and that's how I got to do all this. I got to do all that. Um, the flip side are, are women that deeply, deeply, deeply regret that decision. And they will say that they will think for the rest of their lives, what would have happened had I had that child? Who would that child be? What would they have done in the world? What would they have added to my life? And so I think that's the question that a lot of these young women are having because look. Whether you are 100% pro-life, whether you're 100% pro-choice, we can all agree on the fact that this is not a light decision and that this is not a decision that does not have physical, mental, and emotional consequences. So if I would ask the left to do anything when it comes to this conversation about abortion, it's just like, stop trivializing it. Because these, these lives that are being lost, like... It's not nothing. It really is something. And I think that we need to get, as a society, as Americans, back to the place where we are talking about abortion being safe, legal, and rare. And that, guys, is my problematic take on it. Coming up... Candyman is the latest example of woke horror that fails to scare because it's so busy trying to teach you a lesson. I'll break it down up next. So he's real? Candyman ain't a he. Candyman's the whole damn hive. That was Candyman, the latest in the example of uh, the trend of what I like to call woke horror, so I guess it's it's horror with a social justice message. Uh, this is horror for the new generation, I guess. You know. Um, so first of all, I, I want to get into that because I saw Candyman and it liked it, didn't love it, and and it really did um, raise some issues that I have with. It. A lot of things that are going on with entertainment right now, but problematics, if you know anything about me, oh my God, I love horror movies. I love horror movies so much. My love for horror movies started when I was a kid. I was, I don't know, I would say between eight and 13 years old. And my sister used to let me watch horror movies on HBO with her like late on Saturday nights. Like I'd get to stay up until midnight and and we would watch um, Friday the 13th movies. We'd watch Nightmare on Elm Street. We would watch Child's Play. Play, we'd watch all the classics. So that is where my love of horror movies came from. Uh, hopefully you can relate. If not, I know some people hate horror movies. They hate being scared, but I love being scared. I love them. So 
I was very excited about this new Candyman. So this is um, sort of a sequel slash reboot slash reimagining of the 1992 original. The original Candyman is a terrific, terrific, terrific film. It's very dark. It's very bleak. It is very scary. It is very disturbing. That one I highly, highly, highly recommend. This one... um. I lightly recommend it, and I'm going to tell you why. So this is my thing. We, I feel like as consumers, as people that watch movies, as people that you consume entertainment, we don't expect much from horror movies, I think. I think horror movies and comedies are two genres that have the simplest jobs. Horror movies have to be scary. Comedies have to be funny. So in order for a horror movie to really work, it has to be scary. Outside of, I would say, three quite well-executed scenes, Candyman just isn't very scary. And that's my biggest issue with the movie. Like, I'm not going to get, I'm not going to go on some huge rant about woke politics um, infecting all aspects of culture nowadays. I want to get into that because I think that is a very legitimate critique of this movie. But the biggest critique of it is that it's just not that scary. (laughs) Um, And... As a gore hound, as somebody that, like, I love the blood and guts, you know, call me weird, call me macabre, call me whatever you want to call me. I mean, it's all fake, obviously. Um, So I just like seeing weird blood and guts and stuff like that. And it's just not very, it's not gory enough for me. A lot of the violence in the movie is very implied. It's very soft focus. It's, like, from far away. You hear a lot of the stuff, like, I need to see blood and guts in my horror movies. But like I said, outside of all of this stuff, the movie just isn't that scary. And that is a cardinal sin for a horror movie. So the filmmaker, and this is, you know, this is a good thing. This is, so the filmmaker, her name is Ania DaCosta. And she became, I guess, the the first black woman to open a movie at number one at the box office, which is kind of crazy that in 2021, we're still having these first, but whatever. So good for her, right? Um, So the filmmaker... She seems to be spending a lot of time in this movie. And I have to say that visually, it really is. Visually, it's quite stunning. There are a lot of very interesting things visually going on in this movie. She seems to be spending a lot of time making a point about gentrification, right? About displacement of African-Americans, about police brutality, about all of these things that, that are talking points right now. These are things that we are talking about as a society. And these, look, are valid conversations, I think. They're valid conversations for people to have. I'm not, you know, one of those conservatives that are just like, you know, um, racism isn't real and all that other stuff. I've never been that guy. Problematics, you guys know that I'm not that guy. I'm very even keeled when it comes to a lot of this stuff. And so there there are a lot of valid ways to make these points. Um, And perhaps that there was a less obvious way to weave them into the story. So when you're doing woke horror, I think that the best example, I would honestly think about something that created the genre of woke horror, which is obviously Get Out from Jordan Peele. Phenomenal movie. It's, It's an iconic movie. And the reason that Get Out is so successful and so good at what it does is that whatever Peele's politics are, Whatever points that he is trying to make through this work are secondary to the story that he is trying to tell. And that's why I think that Get Out was so fabulous 
And this movie doesn't quite hit the mark. Candyman. I think that the filmmaker spends a lot of time telling, telling, telling. Okay? Um, gentrification is bad and all of this other stuff. And, and you know, it's one of those things where it's very obvious. So, you know, it. I don't want to spoil too much about the movie. But, you know, obviously, you know... Um, white people are the villains, you know, white cops are the villains and, and white people that move into the neighborhood and, and like these black bourgeoisie characters um, are talking a lot about white people and gentrification and all of that stuff. Now, for me, a more interesting take on this would have been to satirize the upscale, upper class black people that are gentrifying these neighborhoods. That, to me, would have been a much more interesting angle than white cops bad, black people good, black people victim. And and there's just a lot of this stuff in the movie. And culturally, you know, like I said, I don't think this movie was great. I think that it is at least it is worthy of seeing because it's worthy of a discussion um, because there are. I, the three scenes that I'm telling you about, and I won't spoil them, it's enough to it's enough to make it a rental whenever the movie comes out to stream whatever stream it for six ninety nine or whatever. I think those three scenes are good enough to just watch the movie. It is not a complete waste of time. But for me, culturally, we seem to be running into a bit of a dead zone when it comes to anything that represents African Americans on screen or on television. Everything is a lesson. Everything is about race and racism. It's all about what culturally we're talking about at the moment. And I think that a lot of the stuff that we are seeing right now is really going to age like milk. I don't know that people are going to be watching this Candyman, you know, 30 years from now, as opposed to the original Candyman, which you can still watch to this day. It is a terrifying movie. And the movie is about, it is story first. And all of the points that are being made about urban decay and gentrification and all of this stuff, they're made in the original movie, but they are subtle. They're not beating you over the face with it. The guy, and and it's very interesting, and this came up in an interview, the guy that directed the original Candyman was a white guy. And so there's a black woman. So they're going to have different perspectives on all of this other stuff. And I wonder sometimes... If as as African-Americans that are creating content or that are um, creating entertainment or anything like that, I wonder if sometimes it, it, it's harder for people to remove like the politics from the work. I don't know. I'm just kind of like spitballing here. But I wanted to talk to you just about something cultural and something different. Um, I think Candyman's a good movie. It's not a great movie. It could have been a great one. I just wish that... They took a little, they took a few more chances in the story. Before we go, I want to thank my fellow Problematics so much for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at RobSmithOnline. Special thanks to our producer, John Cassio, researcher, Aaron Kliegman, and executive producers, Debbie Myers and speaker, Newt Gingrich, part of the Gingrich 360 Network.